You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. I'm delighted to be here today to host this event. Before we dive in, I want to just uh, give you a few pointers. First of all, I'd like to welcome you all for coming and I'd like to welcome our global audience online who are watching on live stream. If you have any questions as we go along, this is to the global audience, not you guys. Please feel free to type them in the box below the live stream. And to our audience here, please feel free to tweet as we go along in this uh, event using the hashtag Yemen crisis. <laughs> but if I can ask you kindly to put your phones on silent for now. Um, over the last couple of years, I have been traveling across Yemen to report for the BBC. Um, when we first went into Yemen, follow, when the conflict first started, we focused on the bombing campaign and the fighting on the ground. Following that, uh, the humanitarian situation began to deteriorate and we covered the starvation. And most recently, we've traveled across the country to follow the disease that is spreading in, in Yemen. Um, throughout our reporting, we have focused on the widespread violations of international humanitarian law. We've looked into the collapse of the essential services, the rising food prices, the crippling health system, and also the, the outbreak of cholera and diphtheria. And it's clear that Yemenis are fighting for daily survival amid a very devastating war. But one thing that um, I, f I believe we're guilty of in the media is that we oversimplify what's happening in Yemen. When we focused on the humanitarian situation, we've just looked at the blockade or the impediment of the distribution of aid by the warring factions on the ground. We haven't really looked in depth on other factors that are affecting the humanitarian situation. And that's why we're here today. Um, Things like the counter-terrorism laws and the growing fear of financing terrorism. European and American banks have implemented de-risking measures, such as delaying or closing down financial transactions to humanitarian and business communities to minimize money laundering risks. The adverse effects of these de-risking measures are obvious on the ground. Humanitarian agencies are now unable to access much-needed funds to to provide timely food delivery and to respond to things like the cholera epidemic, like the diphtheria epidemic. And the absence of a functioning central bank also means that local businesses are unable to secure letters of credit, which in turn means that their capacity is reduced and some of them have even closed down. So I hope that's why we're all here today to discuss the impact of the bank de-risking measures on local Yemenis, on humanitarian agencies, and on the private sector, and to ask how will Yemen tackle the process of economic recovery? And what can humanitarian organizations do to assist during this transition <laughs> period? On your chairs, you'll find a copy of the Humanitarian Policy Group's new report, Counterterrorism, um, de-risking and the humanitarian response in Yemen, a call for action by the brilliant Shireen Al-Tarabulsi McCarthy. The report highlights uh, the impact of counter-terrorism laws on humanitarian response. And it also explores alternative routes for achieving a realistic economic reconstruction plan. 
So in a bit, I'll ask Shireen to share with us her key findings. But before I do, let me introduce our brilliant panel here today. To my right is Shireen um, Al-Tarabulsi McCarthy. Um, she has written the paper that you have on your seats. And she's also an expert on aid, conflict, and security in the Middle East and North Africa and Europe. She is a research fellow at the Humanitarian Policy Group here at the Overseas <coughs> Development Institute. To my far right is Imran Madden, the director of Islamic Relief UK. Imran has more than 16 years experience in the humanitarian sector. Imran has traveled extensively in the course of his career, facing some of the biggest um, dealing with some of the biggest humanitarian responses in Sudan, Bosnia, Kosovo, Philippines, Central African Republic, and Nepal. To my left is my friend Bara Sheban, who's a Yemeni activist and a Middle East and North Africa caseworker at Reprieve. Um, he's also served as a youth representative in Yemen's National Dialogue, and he's, he played a significant role in peaceful demonstrations against Ali Abdullah Saleh, helping run a media center in Sana'a's Change Square. And last but certainly not least, um, to my far left, we have Dr. Noel Brioni, Dr. Brioni has been following events in Yemen since his posting in Aden in the 1970s, and he is the author of the book, Yemen Divided. So welcome, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me on the panel. Um, Shireen, I'm going to turn to you first. Uh, you've launched your paper that we all have with us here today. So walk us through your paper. What's it about, and why did you decide to focus on this topic in particular? Okay, well, uh, thank you very much for the introduction and thanks for everyone who is here. As uh, Noel mentioned, there are some issues that um, are not discussed adequately enough or in depth um, related to the humanitarian crisis in Yemen today. And the report that you've got looks at the impact of counterterrorism and bank de-risking um, on the humanitarian uh, response. And by de-risking, what de-risking means is the withdrawal of uh, correspondent banking uh, relationships as a result of heightened uh, compliance uh, requirements for banks. What does that mean? It just basically means that transactions either get delayed or completely blocked um, to countries and people who are considered high risk. And risk is a very vague uh, term when it comes to banks because there is no uh, real interpretation or understanding of what constitutes risk for uh, the banking sector. But what we know is that it is uh, related to expectations um, of uh, anti-money laundering as well as uh, combating the financing of, um, of terrorism. The problem with bank de-risking is that it's not a case by case um, or a, an in, it does not target individuals or specific people necessarily, but that there is a suspicion that bank de-risking has resulted in a wholesale debanking of people belonging to certain countries or holding passports belonging to uh, particular countries that are deemed quote unquote high risk. And this is a problem because what you get from the bank, if you get de-risked or de-banked, is basically a letter saying, we are not able to um, bank, uh, your bank account has been closed, um, and unfortunately it's because you do not adhere to the compliance requirements. Or it's just one sentence, literally, without an explanation as to why you've been de-banked or why you've been de-risked. 
The other problem with bank de-risking is that there's really no legal um, um, recourse. So what do you do if you're de-risked as a bank, uh, as a person, or as an organization? Um, there's really very little you can do, and very few. there are very few successful cases in UK courts uh, related to bank de-risking where individuals went and um, used the legal system in order to restore the bank accounts within particular banks within the UK. And the burden of proof is on the individual. So if you get de-risked, not only are you not told why you've been de-risked or debanked, but you are required to prove why you should not be de-risked or debanked, right? So it really is quite a complicated um, process. But even more challenging are the consequences of bank de-risking on humanitarian um, organizations in countries um, like Yemen. So how has it affected Yemen? What is the history of de-risking in Yemen? It actually starts after 9-11. So it's not something that just happened today. It's been going on for quite a long period of time. And it started off with American banks after 9-11, uh, debanking and um, delaying transactions to um, Yemeni bank accounts. And then European banks followed, um, uh, followed suit. And more recently, we've, because of the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, Humanitarian organizations, particularly the local ones, have not been able to have access um, to, uh, uh, to international financial um, markets, have not been able to have access to, um, to banks. Their transactions have been delayed or completely blocked. Now, this doesn't mean that there is no access, because you'll say, well, you know, how is it that you know, Oxfam and other organizations are functioning in Yemen? Well, they are but um, with a lot of difficulty, and international UN organizations, as well as the World Bank, have access, but local organizations do not. And this has been exceedingly disempowering uh, to the humanitarian uh, sector in Yemen. One organization that I've spoken to um, told me that they've had to resort to community um, uh, resilience. They had to resort to the community in order to be able to leverage resources because of delayed uh, transactions to their bank account. But as a result of that, when the cholera outbreak hit, they were not able to respond. And it's because they'd already depleted all their resources um, um, in the period uh, prior to that. So it is a local humanitarian organizations in Yemen. One of the conclusions made in this report is that those organizations are struggling. And there is a need to recognize and um, highlight this struggle because it does have uh, critical implications on the capacity to respond promptly and adequately um, to the humanitarian crisis in, in Yemen today. The other implication is that it's actually de-risking. The argument behind it is, is to fight terrorism, right? It is a means to combat financial terrorism. But the evidence put together within the study actually proves that um, de-risking is opening a door towards corruption in Yemen. Organizations that I've spoken to, as well as individuals, have said that the number of money brokers and money businesses in order to facilitate some uh, form of cash transfer and transactions within, within Yemen has more than doubled. Okay? So because of the failure to resort to the formal <coughs> banking system, 
they've had to resort to a more informal and potentially illicit um, um, system that relies on people passing on uh, and transferring um, cash within the country. Now, the problem with this is not only that um, is not only a result of bank de-risking, but the other side of the story is also the problem with the central bank in Yemen today. The move from um, Sana'a um, to Aden has created a problem um, for humanitarian organizations as well as uh, for the Yemeni private sector. So the move from Sana'a to Aden has resulted in a dysfunctional central bank that does not represent the banking sector within Yemen at a national level, although, you know, formally or um, um, on its website, it should, um, because it should represent the quote-unquote legitimate government in Yemen. But the reality on the ground is unfortunately not like that at all. And one of the, one of the bankers that I've spoken to in Yemen basically told me that they've had to resort to um, corresponding with international banks individually um, because there's no central bank to represent them. And when they tried to get meetings, um, now this bank is based in Sana'a, when they tried to get meetings with the central bank in Aden, they haven't managed to get that meeting um, conducted. And they said that there was complete um, breakdown in terms of governance or in terms of um, any form of um, uh, like a functioning central bank representing the country. Now, why is that a problem? So not only is the private sector in Yemen and the humanitarian organizations unable to get access to international, um, the international financial market because of bank de-risking, but even within Yemen itself, there is no entity that is able to represent the banking sector at the international level. Uh, private sector, local companies are not able to get access to letters of credit, for example, through um, the central bank. And this has implications today in the humanitarian response as well as long-term implications when we start talking about a reconstruction process um, for Yemen. Finally, there's also a tension between what we talk about as counter-terrorism um, measures on the one hand and humanitarian principles and the, on the other, because one of the core principles of the, um, of the humanitarian sector is the principle of humanity and principle of neutrality and to be able to have access to humanitarian um, response. But with the current uh, situation resulting from bank de-risking, organizations, NGOs are left disempowered and not able to um, respond. Now, what can be done very quickly? There's just no silver bullet. There's no easy way out of the situation um, um, today. But I think the first um, and most important point is the need to pay attention to existing evidence. And I think the, the report is one step in that direction, is the need to consolidate evidence um, that would um, reveal the implications of bank de-risking on the ground. When you talk to banks, their understanding of bank de-risking and those counter-terrorism measures, they're sacred. We need to prevent terrorism, okay? Um, banking is not a right, it is a luxury. It is something that people, some people may have, but not everybody around the world should have access to, right? But then, if there is evidence, and the Yemen case study is one of them, that actually bank de-risking is not resulting 
into counterterrorism. In fact, it is opening a door to corruption and potentially maybe actually pushing young people towards other corrupt and more illicit, potentially terrorist um, organizations. So consolidating this evidence is critical and this is a first step. The, there is no escape from a political solution um, to um, the situation in Yemen today. The, the key lies with Saudi Arabia and lies with the international community to put more pressure on the Saudis to, um, 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 to inject more resources into the central bank of Yemen, but also to lift the economic blockade on, um, on Hodeida and the recent uh, Yemen comprehensive humanitarian uh, operation strategy where they promised $2 billion into the Central Bank of Yemen, 1.5 billion into humanitarian operations. It's still quite vague. And a um, recent article was written by, in, by, published by Erin yesterday actually pointed out that there was a major PR campaign uh, parallel uh, to the YCHO, um, which makes us doubt the genuineness of the humanitarian um, response intended. Uh, and finally, there is a need to, as I mentioned, to revisit uh, de-risking policies for international banks, to speak to local banks, particularly within um, humanitarian crises, and to realize that it is very difficult for them to adhere to the same compliance um, requirements that international uh, banks would have. There has to be a way to facilitate transactions to countries that are going through uh, crises, such as the case in Yemen. And I will end there, uh, but hopefully it would be questions where I'd be able to clarify some points I mentioned. Thank you. Thank you. So, Bada, I'm going to turn um, to you next. Shireen's explained to us, you know, the impact de-risking is having on businesses and on uh, the humanitarian, uh, the humanitarian side. Um, can you paint us a picture of how this affects the average Yemeni on the ground, or how it's affected you trying to transfer money back home to Yemen? Yes, absolutely. Um, thanks, uh, Shireen, and thanks for, for everyone here. Um, um, not similar to what Shireen did, which she did in actually comprehensive uh, uh, research, the challenges um, uh, I face, and I'm pretty sure a lot of Yemeni, uh, Yemeni people face on a daily basis, <coughs> Um, comes uh, from um, uh, from uh, uh, many different um, um, I would I, I could say obstacles that are facing once you try or attempt to transfer money uh, into the um, uh, into the country. Uh, now, for many people who don't know um, the uh, the situation, many people, many families inside Yemen highly depend on their family members or relatives who are working abroad and then sending money back uh, to their relatives back, uh, back home. There are also local charities, and this could be a local charity at a neighborhood level that highly depends sometimes on uh, donors or uh, people doing charity at a private at a private <coughs> sector, and highly depend on people sending money uh, from uh, from abroad. It could be from um, from uh, 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 Yemeni people living in the GCC, or Yemeni people with, with, where there are large communities like the U.S. and the U.K. and some of the communities in uh, the communities in Europe. Uh, personally, um, uh, since I came to the UK, uh, I've been sending, trying to send uh, some money into some of the areas that I think uh, people um, 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 are living in the most vulnerable situation. Uh, the most obvious place is uh, Taiz, central Yemen. Um, some uh, family members and friends who just found themselves, unfortunately, uh, in, a, um, in a front line and in some of the uh, besieged areas uh, needs um, and highly depend on money sent from, uh, from abroad. 
um, uh, the first thing I uh, I discovered that there has been there have been extra measures put in any bank transfer until eventually we were not able to transfer money uh, via banks and highly depending on uh, direct uh, cash transfer. So I need to go to Western Union or MoneyGram and send money directly to beneficiaries on the ground. And, in, and, and then I need to, of course, uh, put uh, put their name. Um, in all of the people we, uh, I have been sending to, and many of my friends that I know have been sending, uh, sending to, none of those are officially charged with anything. They're just regular, uh, everyday citizens. Um, so the, uh, the risk of, uh, of, of, uh, of uh, counterterrorism, as rightfully Shireen mentioned, is very vague. We don't know what does that mean if uh, those individuals are not, uh, are not charged. And some of them uh, could be working, could be a, an employee, uh, public, uh, working in the public sector, but just found and happened to find that actually this month they they uh, they they don't have the salary uh, the salary uh, the salary anymore. Last year, what I discovered is actually the amount that we're trying to send into money. There have been extra restrictions put uh, put on that. So um, uh, sometimes I used to send. 1,500 pounds uh, per transfer or 1,000 pounds per transfer. Last year, I discovered actually now we are, cannot send more than seven, 700 pounds because of uh, more measures being put because under the threat of, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, counterterrorism. This meant that some of the uh, uh, charities that depend highly on contributions, and what I mean contributions is actually you're talking to people living abroad everyone paying share, and then collectively they send it to charities that are working uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, in neighborhoods. And I'm talking very local, uh, local level. This meant that many of those charities had to close down, unfortunately. And of course, because of the, the conflict, the situation has been uh, it made it just extra, uh, extra complicated. Uh, the other ways then we tried to find, to find other ways, how can we send money? Uh, without, because even with each transfer, I'm losing also a transfer fee and, and all of those uh, complications. Um, uh, so far, we have been trying to find individuals who are, who are currently either in Jordan or in Egypt and are directly <laughs> flying into the country. So I can send them cash into Jordan or Egypt and then they can collect that money and then uh, they themselves can take it into, uh, into um, our friends or family members living inside, uh, inside, uh, inside Yemen. It also meant creating informal systems. So there are uh, 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 private uh, 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 money uh, exchange shops that actually have um, uh, um, uh, other associates who are living abroad. So you have to deal with informal systems, creating informal systems that actually you t you're, they're just using phone and say, your friends over here receive, let's say, 10,000 pounds, and then he can hand it over to your uh, friend or family member who is living inside the country, and vice, uh, and vice, uh, and vice uh, 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 versa. Uh, in Yemen, people highly depend on social support, and this is whenever we put extra measures during conflict. I think it's definitely, uh, no doubt, is going to affect uh, the uh, regular and everyday citizen living in the uh, in the country. I think I'll leave it uh, here for now, uh, and then uh, hopefully in the Q and A. Sorry uh, to can... cut you short, but yeah, in the Q and A, we'll we'll go into more detail. Um, I'm going to go to you, Imran. Um, in Shireen's paper, she highlighted that local humanitarian organisations were weren't able to respond promptly uh, because of the delayed bank transfers. You're managing Islamic Relief, so a Muslim humanitarian organisation with operations in Yemen. What have you? Um, what are the challenges that Islamic Relief have faced, and your 
partners in the same sector? Uh, well, thank you very much for, for uh, giving me the opportunity uh, to talk about um, uh, our work in Yemen. And of course, we have to remind ourselves that Yemen is, is the biggest humanitarian crisis of our time and absolutely deserves uh, you know, further discussion um, for us to bring back to the table um, issues around um, you know, the enormous challenges that um, the people of Yemen face, uh, that local national NGOs face, and, and, and the international humanitarian system. Everybody's challenged in different ways. But fundamentally, we would, would underline that absolutely, from our experience, from the evidence, uh, we can see that there has been significant impact of de-risking and anti-terrorism measures on the humanitarian system. Uh, but before I talk about um, uh, our work in Yemen, I think there is a, I need to, to give a little bit more context to Islamic relief. Um, we have, um, for example, we, we've been uh, our sort of strong, uh, strongest sort of uh, USP, our, our kind of um, the mainstay of our, our programming has always been delivering much-needed aid to very vulnerable people in conflict <laughs> zones. Um, but we, we would we would add that um, uh, in terms of uh, you know counterterrorism and de-risking, um, we we've we've experienced the process since 9/11. I think Shreen touched on it. It's it's not a new phenomenon. Um, and in that time, since 9-11, so we're talking about sort of 17, 18 years ago, we have um, developed a humanitarian resilience to the effects of counterterrorism and de-risking. In other words, we've had to develop a whole series of coping mechanisms to ensure that we can continue to commit ourselves to delivering aid to those very vulnerable people in, in conflict zones. So in other words, we find ourselves in a sort of constant crisis management mode. Our business model requires us to work in some of the most dangerous, uh, risky places on the planet. And as such, we've had to develop systems in due diligence and financial controls to allow us to continue delivering aid um, to those very vulnerable people. But again, I'll get to Yemen very quickly. Um, just as an example, yes, we, we, we faced uh, the direct impact of de-risking. We, we had a, a global major bank. Um, um, pull the plug on our account. Uh, they gave us the option to close the account, and we refused, but they then went ahead and closed it anyway. Um, we can imagine that we were given no explanation as to why they, they decided to close the account. Um, we, we imagine it's a matter of them drawing a red line somewhere in terms of uh, <coughs> marking out their, their risk portfolio, and we obviously fell on the wrong side of that line. Uh, again, completely irrational, not based on any uh, evidence or experience. So what we've had to do is we've had to cope um, and, and ensure that we've been able to deliver to those very vulnerable people. So in the context of, of Yemen, um, we would say that because we've developed those systems, we have in, in, in many parts been able to, to cope with the challenges of transferring currency. So in, uh, one of the major things that we've decided to do is to, is to um, uh, uh, use a different route for transferring money. We, we will actually transfer in uh, Yemeni rails into country rather than using hard currencies. Now, it's, it's a complex picture. Uh, we do use very compliant and very, uh, uh, you know, compliant models and routes of transfers because we, we again, as I said, we, we're very careful about the way that we function and the way we transfer uh, money. But uh, we found that, you know, using those uh, routes to transfer in Yemen rails has taken a bit of pressure off us. We have to also em emphasize that we've been in Yemen for 20 years. So, you know, the, the assets, the resources, the experience that we have, we work in 18 out of 22 governorates. So we, we've had that kind of level of um, operational capacity that's allowed us to sort of transition into, a, a, again, a functioning model um, within country. But we have to say that, it, you know, the fragility that exi exists in the country can change. It puts pressure on us. We do find at times within the banking system it is difficult to transfer. 
Um, so, in, in re with regard to, to, the, to the, the national humanitarian system, absolutely, with, with, with our experience of dealing with, with partners, local and national, we've seen a clear reduction in their capacity and, and their ability to continue. And it's largely due to the access of, of funds. It's largely due to the fact that you have a central bank that's only present in parts of the country. And, and, and you know, transferring cash has been a major challenge. And, of course, it comes at a time when we're also committed to localization, that, that whole process of, of rebuilding um, or actually facilitating and recognizing the importance of that local capacity. Um, we, we've, we've seen a sort of reversal of that process. But I would agree with some of the findings of the report. We have seen, in fact, very good examples of how local national NGOs have, have, have developed a resilience and a coping coping mechanism. So, for example, one, one of the things that we've noticed is um, there has, you know, there, there are banks that specialize in, in microfinance. Um, and, and uh, you know, that, that system, of course, is maybe more applicable in, for a different age, a different time. But it actually has been repurposed for, for the delivery of, of humanitarian aid. So those local microfinance um, branches are, are able to, to push humanitarian assistance to, to very local areas. Um, the impact of the private sector, we've seen a uh, you know, major impact. Um, when I was in Yemen in December 2016, the thing that really struck me was the paralysis of the middle classes. Now, it's not, the middle classes don't normally get our sympathy when it comes to a crisis, but when, when you, when, in all the humanitarian responses I've been in, I've clearly seen the, the, the absolutely essential role that the middle classes, the trading classes, have paid in the humanitarian response. Uh, so if they're unable to do that, you see a massive reduction in humanitarian capacity. I could mention, of course, you know, things like inflation and the fact that we have to constantly resize our programs. We either go back to a key donor and say, can you give us an extra $100,000, or we resize the program. It, it's a matter of making it really difficult. We've talked, referred to the humanitarian principles, like humanitarian imperative. You, you, you've, you've worked with a community to develop a program to deliver to, say, 1,000 beneficiaries, and you have to cut it in half. You have to go back to that same community to say, we can't deliver that capacity. So we, we've seen, you know, directly, you know, in terms of secondary and tertiary effects, a major effect of, of, of de-risking on, on humanitarian capacity in country. I, I think I perhaps should finish here and allow you to... We're going to go yeah. on, on to more detail in a bit. Um, but let's hear from Noel on the political situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's no surprise that the situation in Yemen after three years now, we're going into our fourth year in conflict, is deteriorating drastically, whether it's the humanitarian situation or the political situation. Saudi, the UAE, and the Houthis are key stakeholders in this conflict. You know, where do you think this is going? What's going to happen next? Well, I think the war is going to continue. I don't see any uh, any reason to think it's going to end this this year because uh, nothing sufficient has changed on the on the ground. I think that there have been some interesting developments recently. I think the the uh, the um, the death of, of, of uh, former President Saleh in in December did in fact suggest there might be some shift in the uh, in the Houthi alliance, but it's quite clear now that Salah's uh, uh, had been weakening for, for, for many months and that the, uh, if he was going to move, he should have moved much earlier, but he's moved too late. And the effect has been that the Houthis are completely in charge of in, in the area in which they, they control um, uh, and are able to uh, to, to continue the uh, the war. The, but, this, but, 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 but those events have actually, I think, given some hope to the uh, coalition side and President Hardy's side in that it has um, uh, 
uh, it, it has clearly undermined the, the loyalty of some army units. Uh, well, I think there was a, uh, one in the uh, Tehama uh, changed sides, so, which was an interesting fact. And it gives the possibility of building a bigger coalition, a more effective coalition uh, around the legitimate uh, Yemen. Uh, well, the government, the legitimate government of Yemen is recognised in, in, internationally. Um, um, but, the, but there may be, I think, some, there is a, a potential for some change in tides, I think, because of the, the, the nature of the fighting there, that there may be some change on the ground in the next few months there, and perhaps in the, on the um, western coast towards, not into her data, but, but, to, but towards her data, and has seen some progress in recent weeks over the, in Saada, on the, on, the, on the Saudi border. But overall, I suspect it's going to be uh, further stalemate. But I think there's just not, not enough uh, troops on the ground to make a difference on the coalition side, and in terrain which uh, basically suits the, uh, the Houthis. Because the Saudi strategy has been on the whole to keep its own forces on defending the border and to train, arm, and equip and support Yemeni forces through the ground fighting, supporting by the air. And I don't see that changing. Um, uh, the factor which need to be taken into account of this is the war economy. I don't know if this will come up later, but the, the Chatham House report has brought out the fact that, that there is now developed in, within Yemen a war economy which actually links both sides and has given vested interest in both sides in, in, in continuing the conflict. And that, that's something which would have to be addressed. Um, I think what's happening in the South is particularly interesting because this, the, where there is, I think, significant change going on. Um, really, uh, the, since the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, well, since the beginning of the war, what's been happening in the South is a fragmentation. Uh, of, uh, of law. There has been no government. The legitimate government of Yemen uh, and, and its government have ministers, maybe in Aden and uh, ministry, ministers in Riyadh, but the ministries and all their records, etc., and personnel are in Sana'a. So the difficulty of actually trying to deliver government, deliver services, uh, has led to, uh, throughout the South, um, in, in different governments, different districts, different people taking charge of their own affairs. And in a sense, the, um, uh, the UA approach in the South, which has been responsible for uh, really dealing with the South, for the coalition, has been a pragmatic one, dealing with whatever group can deliver uh, security locally. And they created these, uh, they call them security belt forces around Aden, uh, elite forces in Hadramat and Shabba, but designed to, to counter terrorism and provide security, but largely organized on, the, on a local basis, which in, in a sense does actually increase the the, the, the fragmentation side. On the other hand, there's been, I think, a big uh, a, a revival of, uh, of, of, of southern nationalism, a uh, demand for separation of the South. This, of course, has been there since the end of unity in, in 1994. But the, the new development, I think, is that the Southern Transition Council, which is a, a group of people um, who are former governors, former army officers, um, have, have created a, a new organization, which, which now has a national organization and is setting up organizations organizations in each governorate, and is clearly very strong within these security units that the uh, UAE have set up. And it was this that enabled them, I think, to, to challenge uh, uh, the President Hadi um, last month and the beginning of this month um, in, in Aden. Uh, they haven't... The, the STC, Southern Transition Council, is very careful not to attack Hadi directly. It talks about attacking the Prime Minister and the corrupt, corrupt ministers, but there's no doubt what, what they actually mean. But they, uh, but in fact, they, they, in a sense, won that confrontation in Aden, although uh, because um, 
that the Saudis and the UAE both intervened to, to, to prevent it uh, getting further and negotiated an agreement between the two sides, which has seen the status quo imposed, but with clearly a moral victory for the STC. And, and the, the test will now be um, what happens to the, whether President Hadi makes government changes to, to take into account of what, what, what is happening, because it's quite difficult for him. Because, see, the message is coming from, from his side is that uh, this was an attempted coup which has failed. But, it, but the reality suggests that, it, that this is simply not, not the case. Um, um, the, so the, the, the question this has generated is the whole question of, of, you know, of southern, uh, southern, southern nationalism. Um, um, and the, the, some, the limited polling has been able to take place suggests that southern nationalism has grown, but also that we have to keep in mind that only 20% of Yemenis are in the south, and the 80% in the north remain firmly opposed to separation and want the unity of Yemen. Uh, and so whatever happens in the end of the day, um, uh, it, it will require the um, acquiescence of the north and whatever happens in the, in, in the south. The Saudis and the UAE, I think, do work together. I know there's been some lot of speculation, but they don't. But if you look at the bigger picture from their point of view, there's an alliance between the two uh, dealing with the, uh, confronting Iran throughout the region, showing very clearly in December at the GCC summit. We're in a summit meeting which, you know, was supposed to last two days, and by some accounts only lasted 15 minutes. The GCC and Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE made it clear they have a special relationship and will be working together over a range of issues. And it's clear in Yemen at least to me, that they're not going to allow differences of approach uh, in Yemen to interfere with this. And th these differences of approach link to um, uh, uh, simply the, you know, the Saudi, I said the Saudi approach because it has a long border, has to defend that border, um, uh, and the UAE, which is much more involved and has used its own forces in, 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 in the south. But, so I don't uh, anticipate any changes uh, to that relationship. Thank you, Noel. Um, this is a question for, for all of you, really, but I'm going to start with you, Shireen. So, you know, it doesn't look like the current crisis is going anywhere. So let's talk about the future. You know, the conflict isn't going away, but there are already reconstruction talks that have started in the region. So in your perspective, um, what does a safe passage for Yemen look like politically, economically and socially? And what can the British government do? What role can they play? Okay, well, I mean, the, because of the complicated situation in Yemen today, people might think it is too soon to start discussing a long-term or reconstruction plan for Yemen. But in fact, conversations within the GCC have already been going on. Riyadh already has a centre or some kind of uh, arrangement for the reconstruction of Yemen, has been uh, collecting uh, resources, and recently the Yemen Comprehensive Humanitarian Operations uh, plan is to you know, open new corridors for humanitarian resources response over there, but also to think, you know, long term in terms of, um, uh, of, of Yemen's uh, situation. I think in terms of for, for the future of Yemen, I think, A, there needs to be um, um, a more international, um, a, a more coherent international plan for the reconstruction of Yemen that does not necessarily look at Saudi Arabia as being, you know, the holy grail or the, the path forward for Yemeni reconstruction. And I think the problem so far has been that there's been a reliance to a large extent on the Saudis or a dependency that, you know, Saudi Arabia is going to come through, it will not yet, uh, will not let Yemen fall. But in reality, I mean, the, the Saudis have claimed that they've put in about 
about $8 billion into the humanitarian response in Yemen from 2015. That's what the Saudi government says. In reality, the amount of money that we're able to track is about $800 million from 2015 till today. So the degree to which transactions are being transparent, the degree to which the amount of humanitarian assistance provided um, is, is being actually met remains uh, largely vague. And for a reconstruction process to actually work, more um, a coherent international engagement um, needs to be uh, put in place. What the UK government can do, I mean, the UK government holds the key, the Security Council, the UK government has been putting a lot of pressure also on the Saudis um, that they needed to um, uh, to somehow do something about the situation um, in Yemen, especially because of the uh, the campaign against the arms sales um, to Saudi Arabia, and what that resulted in, in was actually a PR campaign. So far, I mean, the YCHO is uh, supported by a massive uh, public <coughs> relations um, campaign, but actual humanitarian assistance on the ground. Has not been uh, has not been happening to the degree that the Saudis have claimed. Uh, Hodeida remains blockaded, and that is a problem because most of the assistance goes through um, Hodeida, and they've been trying to up the um, uh, um, the assistance or access through um, through other uh, through Aden, which is not which is never going to be enough in order to facilitate adequate humanitarian response to the Yemeni to the Yemeni people. So I think there's, there's a need for a call for reality, more international engagement, more adherence um, by both the Saudi-led coalition as well as the Houthis uh, to international humanitarian law, actually looking at the facts and not letting Yemen go. I mean, just paying attention to the situation there and that there is need for a more concerted action. And the UK can make, can make a difference via diplomatic efforts and more pressure on the Saudis. What do you think? What should the UK government do? Um, I think there are two things. Um, there, there are the things that, they, that the UK government can do, and the, the things that simply, I think, it just can't do because of how complicated the situation is on the, uh, on, uh, is on the ground. Um, one of the things um, uh, that um, I think the entire discussion that have been revolving around Yemen is um, uh, simply um, uh, uh, very much highly focusing on the humanitarian crisis. How can we um, make more pressure on the conflicting sides if we put more pressure and actually it's affecting the uh, humanitarian situation uh, on the ground? I think this is um, this in part actually oversimplified the um, the reality, which is a complicated situation on the uh, on the um, uh, on the ground. Uh, the, thi the other the, the, the other point is actually when we talk about how um, how the future is look like uh, will, should should look like. I think many of us are still stuck of how Yemen uh, was formed and how we're trying to stick. How can we revive that structure? Would actually I think that structure does not exist anymore. And we have to wake up to the reality that actually uh, the best solution right now is to start thinking local because, um, as Noah rightfully mentioned, the power has been decentralized. Uh, and unless we can respond to the demands of the people um, uh, according to their demands, because the demands of the people living in Taiz is different to the demands living in Sada, to the demands of the people living in Hudaydah, or the people living in the east side of the country in Hadramaut, each um, uh, province or area has different, uh, quite different uh, demands. So I think that now I think it's the time for 
um, any UK policymaker or DFID to start actually thinking, how can we build the capacity of lo the local governance? Those are the people who matter, the people who can provide direct uh, uh, services to the, uh, to the people. How can we make schools and hospitals start refunctioning efficiently uh, on, the, uh, on the ground so people can actually uh, feel the, uh, the direct benefits? Because how matter we try to, to, to do it, humanitarian, uh, pure humanitarian approach is just temporary. It's the nature of the humanitarian work. It's a temporary solution. It's not sustainable. The people I've been talking to since I was called to attend this event, many of them are frustrated they don't have income. So actually there hasn't been any approach that uh, there are projects or programs that generate income for the people living in those, uh, in those areas. And some of those areas, whether believe it or not, are areas that are not witnessing conflict right now. Maybe they have witnessed conflict two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, but now it's been like they, they've been living um, a, a year and a half after the conflict for them and their area is over, but they haven't witnessed any, any difference because the approach from the international level is still the same. Our approach is a humanitarian approach because a humanitarian is less sensitive uh, and, and uh, uh, sorry, is uh, uh, less controversial and, and uh, a lot of people could agree on a humanitarian, uh, humanitarian approach. Another thing that the UK government can do, which is, I think, um, uh, easy if we put the right pressure, is the Yemeni workers on Saudi Arabia. There has been extra measures and laws implemented in Saudi Arabia that is affecting Yemeni people living in Saudi Arabia. Um, the, 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 there are a lot of Yemeni families, hundreds of thousands of people living in Yemen, who are highly dependent on uh, direct money transfer coming from the GCC, uh, from the GCC country, their family members living in the GCC. The easiest approach is that to talk to the Saudis and say, can you exempt those Yemeni workers uh, on, on the foreseeable future, maybe three years, maybe five years, until this crisis is, uh, is over. And I think Saudi Arabia has a responsibility towards uh, those, at least those Yemeni people living on, uh, on, their, uh, on, their, uh, on their soil. Um, so I think um, uh, 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 quickly, we have to think, uh, we have to th think uh, uh, local. We cannot provide food rations to 10 million people. It's just impossible. We cannot make people depend on food rations, and I highly believe that actually the approach that has been taken by many, many uh, international pa uh, players has been dehumanizing to the beneficiaries, the people that matter the most, the people we're trying to serve at the end of the line. And without, again, building the capacity, with all the respect to all, to all expats, expats are not an asset to the country. They are an expat to themselves and maybe to the organizations they work for. But what matters for the Yemeni people is actually, are we building the capacity of the local governance? Are we working at the local level? And, uh, and, and, and again, uh, uh, as I can say, not all areas are witnessing conflict. You can start in many areas building the capacity of the local governance system to actually make it more strong and more resilient and actually uh, 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 make it uh, more efficient. And quickly on the, on the Saudi humanitarian, uh, in one word, the Saudi humanitarian plan, it's interesting, I saw many things that is very resemblance, uh, it's, it's a resemblance to the, uh, uh, very similar to the approach by the, by the UN. Um, however, the only interesting part uh, of it is actually the the uh, the, uh, the the creation of of, of the, the 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 rebuilding of some of the infrastructure that can create jobs. So an easy approach is actually to work on that matter on those. Uh, projects that are actually going to create jobs and actually say, how can we make them more efficient? How can we make the, how can actually when we say it's going to deliver 15,000 jobs, we actually mean that it's actually going to create 15,000 jobs to the uh, people living inside the country. Imran, what does a safe passage 
for Yemen look like to you? How can we make you know work like Islamic Relief's work easier? Um, well, I think I think you know, given our experience and and, and our focus on uh, conflict zones, uh, the thing that we always emphasise in terms of of uh, how, how to move on from a conflict into a, a recovery situation or reconstruction. Uh, we emphasize that the most conducive, conducive environment for humanitarian work is, is a ceasefire, is peacetime. So, you know, at any stage in a conflict, we would say that, you know, it, it can't come soon enough. If there is a ceasefire, um, I mean, I'm talking about the, the practical humanitarian response to that. That is the most conducive environment, not only for the, for the people, obviously, it, it, to, to, to rebuild their lives, but for us um, to, to gain access, to have those humanitarian <coughs> corridors, to have unfettered access to the, to the most needy people. Um, I did actually ask, I put this question about reconstruction to our country director, and I have to say I was, I was rather uncomfortable asking the question about reconstruction because, you know, he, his response was that, you know, we're, we're very far from ending this conflict. That, that was their feeling. And we, we wanted to finish tomorrow, but, you know, that, that's certainly the feeling on the ground. And, and for, for, for us to talk about reconstruction, it's a very difficult conversation given that these people are, you know, they're risking their lives, they're, 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 they're trying to access incredibly, um, you know, sort of vulnerable communities. But, but of course, you know, there is no harm in talking about reconstruction. There's no harm in having that preparation. But we as in humanitarian organizations have that in our DNA. We have that capacity to upscale. Uh, definitely there are, there are things that we can prepare for now to ensure that it isn't uh, you know, uh, a matter of international NGOs, again, dominating the humanitarian scene. It has to be a matter of us recognizing the opportunities for building local capacity. We must really try and do that whether, if we are really sincere about our commitment to localization. But there are practical things, of course, uh, you know, uh, opening up the ports, uh, ensuring that we can have a focus on things like hospitals, schools, and water systems. It's really important that we get, you know, we, we, we get to sort of early recover very, very quickly. Uh, we don't create a, a dependency on that humanitarian aid, but we get, you know, because through construction of uh, hospital schools and water systems, you are in fact creating jobs and you are in fact reviving the economy. Uh, and of course, if you have a central bank that has um, access to all parts of the country and you have the movement of cash, that in itself will be fundamentally important to the process of reconstruction. Now, what do you think the British government should do, considering you worked with them for so long? I you should know best. I left 25 years ago. <laughs> so I don't know about current thinking. Um, no, it struck me with just listening to what people are saying. You know, if you go back to 2010, the Friends of Yemen, which was created by, by Gordon Brown to actually initially to address counter-terrorists in Yemen, but it's, it, it soon worked out you couldn't deal with counter-terrorism in Yemen without actually addressing the problems of Yemen. Uh, and it did move on to that phase. And there's plenty of studies, uh, lots of studies made by UN, in, in, a UN and other organisations into, in, into the needs of, of what is required. Um, um, and uh, one of the things perhaps to do this is to remind people uh, Al-Qaeda still exists and ISIS still exists. It's been dispersed. It hasn't been, uh, it's been pushed out of Makalla, it's been pushed out of Abia and other places, but it is still there and it still retains a global agenda. And that is uh, something at least to get Western countries uh, to, to maintain their interest in it. I think the UK role, I think it has actually has been quite strong. It's 100 and I, I looked at the figures, it's 190, billion, uh, 190 million going this year uh, on, uh, from, from DFID, uh, and I think uh, 72 uh, million next year. Most of that is going on humanitarian work at the moment. So there's this quite... what use is that if the blockade is still imposed? Well, uh, primarily because of the humanitarian aid. I think it goes to... Uh, um, yeah. 
what what the case? I mean, the the. the I mean, shouldn't the UK government be putting more well, I'm sure. Well, I'm busy, I'm sure you know, the, I was really going on to say the, the other thing you can do is help with the peace process. It is still the regarded as the as the lead or penholder in the UN Security Council for for resolutions. And two two one six will have to be addressed at some stage because at the moment that's pretty unbalanced. It's too. The Houthis would see it as being tantamount to surrender. But um, having said that, I mean, I'm sure the Saudi government would say that is non-negotiable. So that's, like, that's something that would have to be sorted out at some stage. And the British government may be able to help with that. Um, also, I think, I know these, these may be slightly far from here, but, you know, the, these, if you listen to what the Saudis say, they're fighting Iranian uh, influence in, in Yemen. Now, you may doubt that, and I think the evidence for it is, should we say, uh, debatable. Um, but um, uh, it is something that needs to be addressed. Uh, and so you have to actually uh, help help deal with this issue in some way or another. Um, uh, there is a whole point about reputational damage. You know, it is, you know, the fact is that uh, it doesn't do uh, the Saudi Arabia and the UAE uh, good to be attacked in, in this way reputationally. So that's something they might want to address. Um, and support for the, uh, uh, the, you know, the humanitarian, uh, I know you've been dismissive, but that is, is here. It's quite, there's quite a lot here in these uh, uh, comprehensive humanitarian operations about new port development, opening Jizan up, opening routes up, and creating safe passages. I mean, it's to hold the Saudis and the UA to, 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 to deliver that, because it, it, that uh, and to expand on it. Um, and some of us, sooner or later, have to do with the war economy, which I mentioned earlier. I mean, that, that's when you have economic interests that want the war to continue, that has to be dealt with uh, as well. Um, and don't attack a data port, obviously. <laughs> Especially now that there's new cranes in, right? We don't want to damage them. Um, so I'm going to open up the f uh, floor to questions. I'll take three at a time, um, and then we'll go and take questions from our global audience. Um, please go ahead. I need a working pen, so can I borrow? So mine's broken. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, go ahead. Please, uh, first of all, sorry, can you state your name and your affiliation? And I'm from Humanitarian Forum. We are not admitting that the international system, if not failing, is failed on all the grounds. And this is something very serious. We are not admitting that, actually, they are not ready or they don't want to sort the conflicts happening in Yemen, happening in Iraq, happening in Libya, happening, 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 and the reasons behind this. Let me tell you something that actually we agreed as government, as, as countries, to fight a monster called terrorism without putting a definition on methodology of fighting terrorism. And we're going blindly. Each country is fighting it uh, separately. I visited Yemen two times last Do year. Do you have a question? Is there a question? I visited Yemen last year twice. Mm -hmm. I went to many hospitals, to Sabin Hospital, to Jumhuri Hospital, in Aden, in Sana'a, in uh, Hodeida. And what I can say that de-risking is risking the life of people. De-risking is increasing the corruption, as Shireen said nicely in her very uh, detailed and good report. And de-risking is increasing terrorist activities and the smuggling of arms and making illegal arms deal. That's what I'm saying. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, to the gentleman over here, please. <coughs> James Spencer from the BYS. Um, two quick thoughts. The first one is on federalism and, and uh, regional development. Great idea. 
The problem is that most embassies um, like dealing with central government because that's a single point of contact and you can have one diffid person to deal with one person in the central government. Uh, if you want to deal with 19, 20, 21 provinces, um, then you probably have to have at least five more staff and that gets expensive on, on um, so the odds of it happening, much very sensible as it is because it solves the problem, uh, is fairly slim. Um, the issue of de-risking, fundamentally, um, it's a risk and reward scenario. Places like Yemen, South Sudan, the Sahel, the rewards to the banks are limited, so the risks for getting it wrong are high. So beating up the banks is unlikely to work. Um, DFID, off the top of my head, have something like a billion dollars sitting in World Bank reserve funds. Um, gen Why, particularly as we leave the EU, um, doesn't the UK set up a development fund, development bank, which is absolutely transparent, auditable, um, and also demands transparency and audit auditability of its um, partners in country, and is therefore able to fire funds into places where Islamic um, relief, etc., etc., need it, possibly take um, uh, uh, funding from individuals um, that can go to named individuals, uh, and fundamentally uh, put government money where the risk to the, to the, to the commercial sector um, is, is too much. One more question. Um, Hi, I'm Richard Stanforth from Oxfam. Um, I want to just agree with so many of the comments um, that have been highlighted. Um, certainly as Oxfam, we cannot take over from the private sector. Oxfam and humanitarian agencies cannot feed 10 million or 26 million people. Um, and it's critical that we look both at the humanitarian problems, which are very important and the difficulties we're facing with issues like bank de-risking, but also, sorry to comment, but also with um, the problems that the private sector are facing, because it's the private sector that basically will save Yemen. And we've asked the UK government, we've brought Yemenis from local organisations to the UK, and, and ministers here have refused to give them funds. We want the funds to go to local organisations. We want livelihoods. People are asking for, for livelihoods. And my, my, my comment or question really, the final one, is there's something called the task force that was set up by Mark Carney, the Financial Stability Task Force. And I heard about it about a year or so ago when we all started facing problems um, with this issue of sending funds into Yemen. Um, and I just wondered if the panel knows any more about it and whether there's been any movement from, from central banks around the world to try and find a way around this. Okay, I'm going to start with you, Shireen. So why doesn't DFID set up something like a development bank, bank that can take in all the contributions. And do you have any idea about that? It's an, it's an interesting idea. It is an interesting question. Why, does that, why doesn't that happen? But I think it would still not resolve the problem. I don't think a bank is going to resolve the crisis in Yemen today. Ultimately, it will have to be through the empowerment of, as we mentioned, the local capacities, the private sector. And, and you know what? Yemenis don't want to live off handouts, right? They want, yeah, they, they, want, they want livelihood opportunities, as, as you mentioned. They want dignified um, pathways towards livelihood and um, living, you know, living a decent life. And I think that 
Well, well, this would be, um, I mean, it is an idea, but if it is already contributing towards the humanitarian assistance and towards development assistance in Yemen, it's never going to be enough without empowering local capacities, without facilitating financial access to the private sector and humanitarian organizations, without resolving some of the, the political problems um, that, that exist in, in Yemen today, without removing, I think, the trusteeship of particular countries over Yemen. Unless that, that happens and Yemenis are able to take, to take control of their fate and be able to uh, contribute uh, positively towards their own economy, then you know, the, um, a solution to the problem is never, is, is never going to be long term. The, the other point that I want, because the, the, the question of local governance has been um, brought up several times by the panel as well in your question. And I want to say something about this. I think the, the nation state system is the system that works around the world. There will have to be um, an exchange amongst governments. A federal system may work for Yemen, definitely, but you need to have a functioning government. You will need to have a functioning central bank. The way, the, the way things work in Yemen today, you've got like four different central banks, each one of them commanding a particular territory. So using more um, um, investment into local capacity is important, but it's never, it is never going to replace a political solution and having a functioning, overarching government. Um, so I just wanted to comment on that as well. Um, have you heard about the task force? I thought maybe Imran, you could answer this one. Well, I'm not, I'm not a finance expert, but I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd like to sort of, you know, refer to the kind of question about DFID money, if I can. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we would all recognise that DFID has, you know, in many of these humanitarian crises, has put significant amounts of money into responses. It has supported the humanitarian response. <laughs> but what, what we're really saying is that, you know, really when we look at this, you know, the, the most significant humanitarian crisis of our day, we, we need to see more of a moral outrage, not just by from the people of, of this country, but from the government. We need to see that expressed very clearly. We need to see the political action that matches those humanitarian commitments. It is the biggest humanitarian crisis. It's an appalling crisis, and we need to see that matched in, in, in political action and, and, and efforts to bring peace to the country. Um, so I think, you know, there are opportunities, and we, we have, I mean, DFID has been great. It's been very innovative. When you look at the START network and the sort, sorts of projects it's been funding, it's been quite innovative. It's been very committed, uh, you know, to the whole process of localization, ensuring that there's, we, we're building the local capacity, because they've been funding programs within the START network to do that. But where they really held back is, is really a debate about how can we get DFID money into those local national humanitarian platforms without going through the subsidiarity process of giving it to Islamic Relief, giving it to somebody else, giving it to somebody else, to somebody else. We have opportunities to be innovative, to pilot programs to ensure that we can get our money from this country as directly to those local national platforms as we can. And there are, there are clear models available for us to do that. And really, why not try with Yemen as an example of innovation and, and cutting through the, the rhetoric to say that we're absolutely committed to building that local national capacity, capacity by transferring cash from the UK to to those local national platforms. And I think, you know, we're talking about regionalization. I think, okay, we, we, there are opportunities now to, to move away from that centralization, that, you know, through, through those local national platforms in the regions, in the provinces, and, and there are great opportunities for money to be transferred directly to those areas. I don't think it has to always go through the capital city. Can we take more questions? I don't think, yeah, we haven't got any from our global audience yet. Um, Salah, please. Yeah, Salah from the Disasters Emergency Committee. Salah from the Disasters Emergency Committee, I think, um, 
certainly the UK public has shown an interest in um, in Yemen. And despite the, the, the little coverage, huge praise to you, uh, Noel, for obviously your, your, your work in reporting the story. Well done. Um, I think... But moving on really from the, from the humanitarian uh, agenda and really going to the political side, um, isn't the continuous failed peace talks really been uh, uh, sort of continuing the war? And really now, shouldn't the international community recognise the realities on the ground? That Yemen is effectively now three, maybe four different states, certainly two different governments, maybe even three. And the recognition of the state of Yemen now by the international community and really negotiating with the local players is probably the start of the end of the war. By continuing to uh, uh, talk to the legitimate government and to the Houthis, there's been a binary uh, sort of uh, place to the war. I think we're all, or certainly the international community, is complicit in maintaining that war. And that may be, sadly, part of that war economy that's going on with uh, major powers around the world supplying, obviously, uh, the Saudi coalition with, with, with arms. So the question is, um, are we all complicit in this war by not recognizing the realities uh, and, and helping really to negotiate a proper local or regional uh, peace deal that will try to rebuild and reconstruct Yemen? Um, I'll take two more questions before we go for answers. Uh, from that side. Thank you. Uh, my name is Laurie Joshua, and I work as a freelance consultant with the UN. I mean, one of the things that strikes me at the moment in, about Yemen is the, is the fact that in Yemen we have a unique situation whereby for the first time we have the World Bank and the IMF working alongside the UN. So you were there for um, Yemen. Last year, the World Bank put in a billion dollars channeled through UN partners, UNDP, <coughs> UNICEF, WHO, FAO. And I think that mechanism is beginning to open up the framework for both discussing humanitarian relief, but also looking at the transition to recovery and future development. So I think, I think there are platforms which are emerging in Yemen, which will, if fostered and supported, will provide a framework for, for innovation in terms of looking at how the future emerges. These are examples of, for example, very practical things like the Social Welfare Fund, which has been injected with $250 million, the Social Fund for Development, another $250 million, WHO on programs of that nature. And it involves working through the government in Sana'a and the government in Aden, as well as other uh, partners. So all I just wanted to emphasize, not, not so much a question, as drawing attention to the fact that there are new platforms uh, which are emerging and hopefully uh, yield dividend going forward. Thank you. I don't know. <laughs> Hi, my name is Duncan Hart from Crown Agents. Uh, Barry, you, you, you talked about the, uh, the informal uh, money remittance system. Um, uh, how important is that for, for Yemen? How, how is it going to face the same uh, problems that with the, the de-risking of the formal system has faced? And in Somalia, for example, the Hawala system was really important throughout, throughout the 2000s, but then it faced the same issues of clamping down on how it operates 
Um, is, is that happening in Yemen? Is it something that may come around the corner if the system grows? Can you pass the microphone to the lady in front of you, please? Thanks. Uh, Lizzie Hobbs from King's College. Um, just kind of in Afghanistan, there was quite a lot of observation that counter-terror legislation really inhibited humanitarian organizations from kind of engaging with non-states to gain access. And I just wondered whether this was a dynamic you'd seen in Yemen at all. Great. Okay, let's start with, are we all complicit in this war? Who shall we know? Would you like well, to answer we that? Well, that's the peace process side of that. I mean, the, 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 there isn't a, a new, new envoy, envoy is being appointed this week, I think. It might even be British. One of the lead candidates is British. Uh, and I think clearly, I think people feel that you know, there is time for a, a, a fresh look at how one goes about peace. And I'm sure, sure this will happen whoever gets appointed as envoy. But at the same time, you have to deal with the, with the reality of who's fighting each other. I mean, essentially, at the end, it's it's the it's the Houthis, so to speak, against the, the the coalition, and the peace deal has to be done between these two. And what I think one needs to try and hope for is the sort of thing we need almost reach in 2016, uh, when the peace uh, there was a peace plan which involved implementing bits of 2216 and and, and also political changes in Yemen. So you'd have maybe with some arms withdrawal, withdrawal from this city in exchange for the creation of, of vice president or presidential council. The next step would be further uh, moves, and then finally we would see President Hadi resign and, 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 and there would be a coalition government formed. I mean, I think whatever, you know, in the end, that's probably going to end up something like this, but that will have to be gone through the peace process. I think what's happened locally is clearly important in, in development terms, and you know, I see this particularly, I mean, maybe Mohammed can talk about it, in, in Hadramaut, there are and Bahra, there are these areas where there has been no war fighting. You have to remember, in these, in that part of Yemen, there hasn't been a war. Uh, um, uh, that, uh, and there's a quite a significant diaspora which is able to support uh, 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 development. So it's, it's a question of, 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 of building on that, that locally. And just finally on the south, I mean, the STC, I think, you know, it might be a means of trying to to uh, to, to, to 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 bring the south south together. Building what somebody made the point that that the you know it, it, going too local. This is a, a, a an, anti, an antidote to that, if it if it works. Yeah. Imran, what do you think about um, the question the lady asked? Is uh, yeah, about the kind of the effect of of counterterrorism. Um, I mean, if we if we use our own kind of experience in places like Syria, uh, Yemen, and other countries where there are clearly Issues with um, you know, armed groups and, and terrorist groups. Um, you know, they're very, they're very difficult choices that we make as an organisation because we, I mean, one of, our, one of our greatest strengths is reach. I mean, we we, we have a capacity to to negotiate access, uh, but well, what we, we we see in, in many cases is uh, where we have actual practical reach. We we have the ability to work in a particular area, but we choose not to, and the reason for that is that it's it's just not possible for us. To be working close in in an area that's occupied or, uh, by an armed group that is that is a known terrorist group, it's just it's just it's just too risky for us, and that's a very difficult thing for us to admit and accept because you know we have this in our DNA this this instinctive thing about getting to you know almost beyond reach communities. We've we've been very successful in reaching it, and that's not it's not a, it's not a practical thing. It's it's actually about you know assessing you know uh, you know what might happen in certain situations if a you know something. That, that's stolen off the back of a WFP truck, and, and it's, it's there's a picture of a terrorist with a WFP 
uh, sack, well, you know, WFP can roll with the punches. I mean, it's not going to be, uh, you know, immediately accused of being a terrorist supporter. Uh, but if, if it's an, an organization that's as like Islamic Relief or another Muslim agency or, or similar, we're, we're then, we're, we're, we're in a very difficult and different place. So it's a real, it's a sad reality that in so many countries, uh, whilst we are doing you know, our, our utmost to reach uh, many vulnerable communities, there are situations where we, we decide not to uh, enter a particular area because of that particular scenario. But uh, can you answer the gentleman's question on the Hawala system? What are the challenges it would face on the ground in Yemen? Sure. Um, uh, I, um, and if you would allow me, I would like to reflect then back quickly on the, on the, on the, political, uh, on the political question. Regarding the Hawala system, I think yeah, it could face a similar challenge. Uh, I think we're still at an early age, so we don't know what might happen uh, 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 tomorrow. We know there is a system that exists and it is um, uh, unofficial. Uh, but of course, there could be a risk if it if it grow uh, bigger, then they they could be uh, more uh, de-risking uh, de-risking measures against um, against it. But I think this this is only le you know left to the, for the for the future to uh, to uh, to decide. Um, quickly on the question about uh, about the political uh, political side, I would slightly disagree because simply this would encourage each any armed group who who just have arm and can occupy a territory to actually just hold weapons, occupy a territory, and say now we have a stake, now we want to be part of a uh, part of the table. Um, these kind of discussions were happening slightly in 2016 uh, when uh, they were trying to talk to the parts, actually trying to encourage them to talk as political parties. Uh, who once were engaged in a political uh, on, on a political dialogue. Now I think it further complicated things after the Houthis uh, killed the former President Saleh and the targeting of the GPC because now you cannot uh, uh, deal with them only as one side as the Houthis and the other side as the other side. On, only if the other side are willing to be talking as as sides independently. Uh, that's 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 something else. But so far it is. It's I think the 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 second round I think of discussions then should involve them separately, uh, um, uh, separately. but um, I think uh, so far I think the situation will remain just as, as it is. But I also think, I mean, covering, I'm going to use my contributing chair card now, but covering the peace talks, I went to all three rounds. I think this is the first time right now that the international community is taking Yemen seriously, particularly the UK. It's now high up on the agenda. But, you know, going back to what you said earlier in your, in your um, talk, is that the situation is very different now. I think Yemen had better prospects for salvaging the situation and prospects for peace earlier on in the conflict when the international community ignored it than it does now. Now it's a lot more complicated. It's a lot more fragmented. And it's going to take a lot more effort to, to come up with a peaceful process which keeps all the warring factions happy. And also going back to something you kept um, bringing up, the war economy. The war economy mm. took a while to be set up and to be as... Uh, I would say, sophisticated as it is now. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the main reasons that we remain in this state of chaos. And trying to take that away from people on the ground now in Yemen is going to be a lot more complicated than it was during the first round of talks when we were in Geneva a few years ago when the international community simply just didn't care about what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, more questions? <laughs> uh, sorry, the, the gentleman on the back. Thanks. Hello, Ben, uh, events officer here at ODI, and we are experiencing some minor technical difficulties in passing on our <laughs> online questions. Um, so I thought I'd pose a couple of them to you. Okay. Um, first one from Serge Veldhuizen. Um The UN is more or less non-existent in Yemen at the moment. What should the UN do to have a greater role in achieving peace? 
I think what I just said answered that question, so that's that. Um, and a couple coming through on employment. So um, where do you see the opportunity to create jobs for vulnerable groups such as youth? Um, and a question in particular for uh, Barah. Um, from your perspective, what are the current livelihood opportunities within the region? Thank you. One more question from here, please. Um, this lady over here. Thank you. Um, I'm Molly Anders from DevEx. I wanted to ask um, specifically, I guess, what kind of advice you're giving to local partners um, in preparing for this, not just obviously preparing for it, but trying to see it through. I know it is hard to talk about reconstruction. Um, what support do you get from DFID specifically on the localization effort and helping these local organizations cope? So should we start with um, employment? So how to create more jobs? Um, Shireen? Um, I think the creation of more jobs, I think the first, the first access point towards the creation of more jobs is the Yemeni private sector. Remember that for the Yemeni private sector, their market is within Yemen. Their primary, their number one market is Yemen. And, um, and a previous study that I put together on the role of the private sector in the humanitarian response in Yemen did highlight the fact that the private sector is actively engaging on the ground, has access to different um, areas within the country, are familiar with the needs and are familiar with um, uh, the capacities of their population. So there is a need, I think my response to that question would be to to facilitate financial access for the private sector, help the private sector of Yemen to engage actively in that reconstruction process, but also at the moment in terms of providing livelihood opportunities and providing an active role within the humanitarian response. And, and it is international humanitarian organizations that can play this role at present by engaging with the private sector as partners rather than simply considering them, you know, um, um, actors on the ground, you know, just giving them tasks to do this or the other, but actually engaging them within the response itself and in the long term via uh, providing them with uh, financial access um, uh, globally. And um, I think that would be that would be my response to, to livelihood opportunities. What do you think, Bara? Um, I think the um, 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 uh, definitely, uh, definitely, definitely, definitely the private sector. Um, 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 uh, once I, I started discussing about a reconstruction plan, uh, whether it was in, in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Aden or in Lahajan, um, I think the private sector should be a partner uh, in, into that discussion because uh, we are addressing how um, uh, how can they uh, remain, and how they can be a um, how 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 can they uh, remain sustainable uh, under these uh, uh, these um, these uh, uh, current conditions? And the other thing is actually, whenever we talk about infrastructure, we're talking about an opportunity to create jobs. And whenever there is discussions around uh, infrastructure, it is an opportunity to actually an incentive for the local uh, actors to move um, uh, closer towards peace. So I think uh, these are uh, these are I would say um, uh, um, uh, like very clear I think um, opportunities we can uh, we can uh, we can we can address um, uh, and of course the, uh, the 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 other thing is actually uh, addressing the demands of the Yemeni people as they see them we cannot uh, say like this should happen or that should happen they should be the ones who determine what they need and it depends on the demands of each area or uh, province 
or region, how, what are their priorities um, um, instead of um, having just an um, agenda from far away. Um, Imran, what is your advice to local partners? Um, well, I, I would say that, um, I mean, you know, be confident in your, your knowledge and your capacity. I mean, we know that they are the, often the frontline humanitarians. They, they receive something like 4% of direct humanitarian aid, and yet they deliver 70% of it. So we know that they are always at the, the front line delivering, you know, often in very difficult situations. So recognize that you've got that expertise. Um, capacity is an issue. You, there, there are definite challenges within capacity, issue, uh, issues around, you know, uh, humanitarian standards, you know, finance processes, that sort of thing. So, you know, get get to know your, your international NGOs and get to know the, where, where the capacity is and get, get the training for your staff to ensure that you are, you know, ready to receive that level of support. But but also when it comes to, you know, a recovery situation and when, when we have the cluster system established, and we've seen this so many times, the UN will invite the international NGOs to a cluster meeting and they all attend and there's not not a single national NGO around the table and we, we had situations in the Philippines where we were working with a local NGO and we, we felt so embarrassed by the lack of national NGOs a, a, around the table and when we invited this national NGO we, we thought that they would come rather rather intimidated by the UN system and, and almost at the moment that the UN, UN Archer guy turned his microphone on the guy started haranguing him saying how, you, how dare you not invite national NGOs what, what is wrong with you guys and I think that's it you know no, no, you have that influence. It's your right to be there in those meetings. You know, turn up if you're not invited. Just turn up and sit there and 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 talk about what you have to say because you will be you will be definitely overlooked by the UN system. Unfortunately, it's still not working. I think we've got time for one more round of questions. So, is there any questions that we please go ahead? Hello. Uh, Peter Asprey. Um, just a, uh, two questions. A brief one is just about tra traditionally the, the share of um, you know, how much money movements inside Yemen was in the informal sector and, and how much in the banking sector before stuff kicked off. But the sort of the bigger question is whether you can give any more granularity to this concept of a, of a war economy, whether it's a sort of a, a war economy that's developing at a micro level or whether it's sort of bigger resource extraction related, you know, international dimensions as well. Thank you. Um, to, let's take two more. The lady over there. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, I'm Caroline Anning from Save the Children. Um, I wanted to ask about the issue of uh, payment of public sector salaries, which you've touched on on the panel and kind of what could be done in the immediate term to address that? Certainly for us, and I know for other aid agencies on the ground, it's a huge, huge issue, not just for the impact that it has on kind of millions of individual families, but also for the running of basic public services. So schools, particularly for us, but also hospitals, sewage, everything that you can imagine, as I'm, as I'm sure you know. When we've spoken to UK officials about it before, they've said, you know, last year they were saying they were kind of putting pressure on uh, the Saudis and then on Hardy to pay it from the central bank in Arden. Now when we speak to them, they say the responsibility is with the Houthis. Uh, in the north to pay it themselves and I, you know it's quite hard to know where that responsibility sits and who actually has the ability to to restart those salary payments I wonder if you had any insights into that um, one more question before we take answers Najah please uh, hi I'm Najah and I'm from Islamic Relief um, uh, it's, it's working yeah. 
Uh, I have just a comment uh, on the back of what Amran mentioned with the UN system. I have n a problem with all the numbers that have been mentioned of the amount of aid that Yemen receives. Because we all know with the UN system, a lot of that amount goes to expats, a lot goes to the security system, and the uh, average beneficiary hardly receives a few percentage of that amount. So I just have a problem with the numbers that were mentioned. And my question is to the international community. To what extent are we implicit in recognizing Houthis as the government in Sana'a? It was mentioned that they are the actual government in Sana'a. So to what extent are we implicit in recognizing their role and somehow reviewing this war? This war? Thank you. Um, shall we start with the war economy? Um, who wants to answer that one? I, I mean, I, I can only refer you to it. There's a chat, an excellent Chatham House report called Yemen, the Chaos State, which actually uh, sets out to describe it. But what I think essentially it says is that uh, it's partly the, the way that uh, goods imported uh, to Yemen pass first through uh, the normally through the what you might call legitimate government's uh, customs, and then it moves to the Houthi areas where it's Retaxed again, and in, uh, on the way there are whole sorts of checkpoints. I think up to 25 on some routes where money is extracted for for lo local purposes. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are making money out of that. In, in effect, also the two, two governments are, are part of that. But that's, that is, you could argue is, is obviously le legitimate. And beyond that, there is the control of distribution at either ends of of certain key commodities. Um, but it's um, it, it, that that report actually uh, uh, it goes into detail. it. Yeah. I mean, just to paint a picture mm -hmm. of the war economy. When I was in Yemen last a month ago, driving into Sanaa, there's a queue of trucks, and when I say queue, I'm talking around 200 trucks trying to make their way into Sanaa, and um, and I was wondering why there was such a queue, and I realized that there's someone at a checkpoint that is taking cash from every single truck that comes in, depending on what they're carrying. And then as we were making our way into Aden, no, out of Aden, I think, is the same thing. So it works in the same way in both sides. Um, and that goes on to your question about the public salaries um, on the ground. Uh, I think even on the ground, people aren't sure because the Houthis do have this taxation system um, where they're taking money from people as goods come into to Sana'a, but it's un and especially fuel. So there's a lot of money being made out of fuel coming into the north of Yemen. Mm -hmm. But how organized that is and whether that's enough money to pay all the public sector salaries mm -hmm. is unclear. Um, personally, I think it could at least pay something. It's going to someone's pocket and it's probably funding the conflict itself. Um, but it isn't clear and that's why they keep passing the buck. So before Ali Abdullah Saleh died, the Houthis blamed it on Saleh and Saleh blamed it on the Houthis. And now the Houthis have the finger pointed at them. Um, and that's why the first month after he died, they paid half uh, a month's public salary because they realized that this could put them in very tricky water afterwards. Um, I wanted to say something about the the war economy, and because you asked for the, like a more granular approach, I think the, the the establishment and the creation of this class of money brokers is going to feed into that war economy. So what we're witnessing is not only a war economy that is stagnant; it's actually getting more complicated and including new actors and a whole new class of um, of uh, money brokers. Not only because of the failure of the central bank in Yemen, but also because, as I mentioned, because of the the uh, counter-terrorism measures. You asked another question about how, to what extent were banking, you know, 
was there banking penetration in the period prior to 2011 or even prior to the current crisis, 2015? It's, there are there's, there's, there are no statistical um, uh, figures that are readily available there. But from the conversations that I've had with uh, bankers um, in Yemen from different levels, both working for government as well as um, private, uh, private banks, there was uh, a banking sector that was very um, uh, vibrant and that was working very closely with international banks towards very um, heightened compliance mechanisms and um, there were constantly meetings taking place both regionally as well as internationally and all of that is, um, was was taken to a whole new level especially after 9-11 um, when they had to uh, professionalize even further so there was a banking or functioning banking um, system in Yemen what you want to avoid is a Somalia um, uh, scenario, which which you referred to, because with the situation in Somalia today is that you cannot survive really without the uh, money uh, transfer companies that exist, right? And it is the money transfer companies that are actually getting de-risked at the moment, and that is the the problem with de-risking in Somalia. But you have a situation in Somalia where the central bank in Somalia does not have any oversight over the money transfer businesses. Now, you don't want to have a similar, similar scenario in Yemen where there was a banking sector, but now the banking sector is getting extremely weakened. You have an illicit and more informal sector that is emerging, that is slowly becoming part of that war economy that we were talking about, and that the central bank in Yemen, once it gets more functional, you know, God knows when that's going to happen because it is primarily a political decision. When that happens, it might not be able to have the adequate oversight over all of those uh, transfer companies because they come with benefits, okay, but they also come with uh, the potential um, uh, potential corruption. Any of the receipts that you get through any of those uh, money transfer companies cannot be verified. For example, there are no systems of checks and balances. They're mostly about, you know, people connecting to one another. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to just comment on those points. Um, Noel, can you answer Najah's question on, are we implicit in calling, you know, when we keep referring to the Houthis as the government of the North, well, I think, are we yeah. not giving them some sort of um, credibility? Well, I, think, well, I mean, I think, again... Uh, Certainly, in my days in the Foreign Office, one recognised uh, in in, uh, in in terms of countries who's in, actually in control, uh, and clearly in, in in that terms, the Houthis are are in control of that area, and are in that sense, uh, you know, the the authority. But it's just all the UN resolutions don't recognise this, and, and and they did come to power by seizing power from uh, from Hadi uh, in in Sanaa in September 2014, forcing him into a a, a, a particular agreement which they themselves didn't honour, and then leading to the tax on him in, in, in January, uh, uh, December, January, uh, around the start of the war. So it, 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 in that sense, uh, they're clearly not legitimate, but in, in terms of the realities of dealing with the situation, clearly a peace deal will have to be done with the Houthis in it eventually. Thank you. Yeah. So... Um, Thank you so much for this brilliant discussion. Uh, but before we end, I'm just going to give you all a minute to reflect on everything we've spoken about. Shireen, would you like to go first? Um, I've, 
a few points just to wrap up. I think the first point is that there is an urgent need, and as that report mentioned, a call for action um, to look at the implications and the impact that bank de-risking and counter-terrorism has had on a humanitarian crisis in Yemen, and that the fact that we've consolidated evidence to prove that it's opening a, a door, a pathway towards corruption, feeding into a war economy, um, must um, must urge us to rethink um, the adequacy and the utility of uh, counterterrorism um, measures. I think the path forward for, for Yemen um, needs to um, include a concerted international effort calling for um, IHL um, um, abiding by international humanitarian law to both the Saudi-led coalition as well as um, the Houthis looking at the facts and understanding that humanitarian assistance that is given to Yemen today is never going to be enough unless there are long-term solutions that look towards a reconstruction of Yemen and more dignified livelihood opportunities for the people. And finally, that people who hold the key to re the rebuilding of Yemen are the Yemeni people themselves. The World Bank and the IMF may work in Yemen today, but they're not going to be able to, um, to hold the key towards Yemen's future. The only way forward is to empower local humanitarian sector, the local private sector. Those are the people who are going to, um, to, save, uh, to save Yemen and the humanitarian crisis we're witnessing today. And the UK government as well, the international community, has the obligation as well as the, mor the moral obligation in order to stand up um, uh, for, for Yemen and, um, and, and support the, the Yemeni people rather than political agendas. Thank you. But uh, what are your reflections? Um, I think uh, in addition to what uh, 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 Shireen mentioned is um, simply we need to um, address uh, the demands of the, of, uh, of the people in the different regions um, uh, um, as they are. I don't think there is a fixed or fit model that just uh, fits, um, fits, uh, fits everywhere. Um, the, uh, sometimes we need to address the realities and uh, how uh, the situation is sometimes uh, is complicated. It doesn't help just to um, oversimplify the, uh, the, uh, the, um, uh, the problem. Um, and I think also uh, in, uh, in addition to that, uh, think about where, where there is opportunities and where we can, uh, w where we can work. There are many, uh, many things that we find hard and sometimes it's, 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 uh, uh, people are frustrated because there is a lack of a political will from, uh, from, from all sides to reach a solution. But at the same time, whenever there is an opportunity and chances, we need to, to work on that. And at the moment, there are um, uh, at least a, a huge will at the local level uh, that they want to empower themselves. They want to improve their livelihoods. They want to uh, um, have a more sustainable a sustainable solution uh, for, the, for their uh, daily living. So I think um, uh, addressing that is important whenever we, uh, we uh, uh, talk in uh, forums or discussions around, uh, around Yemen. And, uh, and uh, finally, is uh, whenever there is opportunities and, and avenues to, 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 to advocate, we need, to, uh, we need also to, uh, uh, to do that. One of the clear avenues we have today is that the Yemeni workers who are living in Saudi Arabia, many of them are risking of losing their jobs because of the extra measures put in by the Saudi, uh, by the, by the Saudi new laws. Uh, if we can put enough pressure on that front, we are actually contributing to the many thousands of people living inside, uh, inside Yemen. Imran, what are your reflections? I mean, ultimately, I mean, we, we really 
had a, had a major focus on the de-risking process and the effect it had, it's had on the humanitarian system. And I think, you know, it's, it's really a, an appeal to governments, to, to banks. I mean, it really starts with the governments because the banks are really responding to what the governments really expect of them. Um, to, 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 to look at this issue and, and, and to realise that so many NGOs, I mean, Islamic Relief and others, are, are spending so much time and resources to ensure that they are, you know, compliant, that their due diligence is, is, is effective. And, and you know, if we could, we could convert that, that sort of, you know, those resources into humanitarian and action that in itself would make make a major difference. I mean, I think Shireen actually covered so many of my points, but because she really nailed it in terms of covering it. But um, I would also say that you know that there will be an end to the war at some stage, and at that stage, I appeal to you know to the NGOs that are actually in the, in country at the moment, and to the UN system, and to governments that are that are funding you know that future humanitarian response to put you know that local and national humanitarian capacity at the heart of the response. Uh, yes, one, one brief thing. This is not, not strictly my concern, but I was slightly surprised in the answers earlier. We, we didn't talk about agriculture and the rural areas where mm. over 50% of people are employed. If we're going to look for jobs, it's got to be through restoring agriculture and addressing the, the experts now say about the water situation in relation to agriculture, going back to uh, rain-fed agriculture, more intensive agriculture, uh, less investment in, in the pipe, in the irrigated agriculture, which is, which is draining the water. Bearing in mind, you know, that Taiz is already threatened with uh, uh, no water, and Salah may well be in the next 20, 20 years. But the, 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 but the, on the actual issue is the, um, I think the, the I hope that the, the the new change in the UN peace envoy will give a, a renewed chance to to, to 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 go forward with peace, and that's what uh, I've got to see because the fact that both sides need to realise this war is unwinnable by either of them in the end. Uh, um, uh, uh, and the sooner they can realise that and, and, and come to an agreement and start offering hope to the Yemeni people, the better. Thank you so much to all of you. I mean, I don't know what I can add after what you've all said, except that the time is now and something has to be done. There needs to be more pressure from the international community. And hopefully with the new UN envoy, mm -hmm. there'll be a new fresh... Uh, plan for a resolution that actually applies to the situation on the ground today. Um, so thank you all for coming. The video of this event will be online tomorrow and there's coffee outside so you can still pick the brains of our <laughs> panelists in the coffee room outside. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.